Good morning. Uh, if I've not met you, my name is Darwin Jordan. I'm one of the pastors on staff along with Ryan Moore and Philip Maxwell. And we welcome you uh, to our fellowship and hope that you'll be encouraged in Christ Jesus as you're uh, among us. If you will pull out the handout, I've created this for your encouragement, for your continued use uh, throughout the week or weeks, to pull uh, scripture together uh, under this topic of the cross. One of the things we're doing, I mean, the thing we're doing this summer is preaching on the Apostles' Creed. So today we're taking that section, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, because of the nature of our study, we're not looking at a particular passage each time, but we're pulling teaching from throughout the Word of God together under these topics. Now, I didn't go to Covenant Seminary, but I heard that one of the professors who taught homiletics or preaching at the seminary said, every once in a while you can preach a sermon that's not strictly exegetical from a text, and then you should repent of it. (laughs) So in that sense, we should repent of the whole summer uh, (laughs) because we're doing topical sermons all this this summer. But I hope, uh, as always, that we are just as much grounding it in Scripture, if not a single passage, perhaps there's another kind of strength to draw passages together to show a theme and to be encouraged by how that theme, uh, one text builds upon another and, and strengthens another. And there's a whole network, a whole web of passages. And of course, what I have before you is a small sample, just a small part of the teaching of the Word of God on this in this subject. Now, we uh, have every kind of instrument by which to see things that we can't see, right? Uh, it's amazing, as I began to look at what telescopes there are, that there are major kinds, like five or six, seven or eight major kinds, and then dozens of telescopes underneath that of various kinds to try to see the heavens. We know on the other end, microscope, the optical microscope, and the electron microscope, and the fluorescent microscope, which I'd never heard of, um, then binoculars and sextants and uh Every kind of thing to see things that we can't see and scopes of all kind, uh, MRIs and CAT scans and x-rays and scopes that invade places we wish they wouldn't um, to see things inside of our body. But I want to talk about a way to see all of life, a way to view Literally every single thing in your life, every single person in your life, every single event, every single uh, circumstance to look at your past, to look at your present, to look at your future. We, we sometimes talk about, and, and it's right that we should, about the lens of Scripture, seeing all of life through the lens of Scripture. Excellent. Yes. But as we think about what Scripture ultimately points to, 
What's the ultimate final essence of the message of the scripture? What was Paul here, this amazing Jewish uh, Pharisee who had become a Christian and now was proclaiming a message throughout the whole Roman Empire? What was it that he was proclaiming? As you might say, the the grand uh, end point and summary and uh, reason for all of the scripture. And he gives it, as I uh, summarize it here in this first little paragraph, he's talking about preaching in 1 Corinthians 1. And as he discusses this gospel message, here are the phrases that he uses to describe that message. The cross of Christ. Just imagine the whole message being summarized with this one phrase. The cross of Christ. Or he calls it the word or message of the cross. That's the good news. Or to put it another way in verse 23, Christ crucified. Or later in chapter 2, verse 2, Christ and him crucified. And so the lens of the Bible through which we should see all of life is in the final analysis the lens of the cross by which we should see all of life. And there are so many points I had to eliminate, you know, many things that you'd want to treat under the vision of the cross. But at least these three, and you can think of many more, but we will touch on these three. First of all, the cross gives us a vision of God's forgiveness. And I call it a vision because you, you, we must keep our eyes fixed on the accomplishment of the cross believe in that accomplishment, understand what happened on that cross in order that we constantly have this assurance and comfort and encouragement and relief of being forgiven of our sins. So it's anticipated in the Old Testament, and it's interesting, I didn't have room for this, but in Romans chapter 3, Paul brings up the issue that God had passed over sins all the way through the Old Testament. And you've heard us say before that the scripture is not, it does not ask the question, why is there a a hell? The scripture asks the question, why is there a heaven? See, we, we ask, why is there hell? The Bible says, how could there be heaven? How could it be? When every single person has turned their back upon God, every single person is polluted with rebellion against God, and yet there's a heaven. How could that be? That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 3. So when we talk about these Old Testament statements about forgiveness... Paul says the reason that God could pass over sin is that he was waiting for the time where Christ himself would bear away the wrath that all of those sins deserved. 
So forgiveness in the Old Testament, it was real, but in a sense, it was provisional, waiting, 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 waiting until punishment could be spent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that big word, propitiation, but such a beautiful word because it means that he bears away the wrath of God. He swallows it up so that none of it touches his people. And that's why Paul says he can be just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ. That's the catch. That's how there can be a heaven. How could there be people in heaven? Because God is just and he pours out his wrath upon sin so that being just, he can now declare us forgiven. So the context for a statement like Psalm 103 He says, he forgives all your iniquity. And then I love this beautiful analogy, and I'm sure many of you too. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now that one's a hard one to live out. Because you and I want to hold on to our guilt. And we plague ourselves over the past things that we've done. Now it's fine for us to think through and to carve out new paths and to be sorry for the pain we've caused and the the wrong that's uh, poured forth from us, the things we've said to people, the things we thought. Yes, all of that. But as to guilt, we must believe our sin is removed. And east and west, you can't be measured. It means as far as it could be removed from you. Do you believe that? Is that your vision for forgiveness? My sins and, and, and my guilt for them and God's regard and, and maybe the, his, his attitude toward me, it, they couldn't be further apart. The same feeling from Isaiah 38, he says, you cast my sins behind your back. Is that your vision for forgiveness? When God looks at you, where are your sins? Somewhere back there. <laughs> Not here. He doesn't look at you and regard you according to your sin, you know, withhold his favor because of your sin, frown at you and refuse you because of your sin. Your sins are behind his back. He simply loves you, forgives you, totally forgives, forgive, uh, totally forgives you. So these are statements from the Old Testament. And then Jeremiah 31 As though these statements aren't glorious in themselves, Jeremiah 31 contemplates a new covenant in which a whole new dramatic way sins will be forgiven. And I think what this, what he, what God is saying here is then we'll be in the post Christ era, right? Where sin has been poured out on the Lord Jesus and more than ever before, people will taste and be enriched by the forgiveness of sins like nobody ever had been before in a way. Because now we see those sins put upon Christ and now the Holy Spirit is poured out in a rich way. It never had been poured out to convince us that our sins are put away in Christ. And so... He says, they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Why? Because I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. 
And brothers and sisters, here is a beautiful part of this. They'll know me because I will forgive their sins. You can't know God unless you know the forgiveness of sins. He will not be known in any other way. You want to push your guilt between you and God? You want to distance God from you and think that he doesn't show favor on you? The only God there is, is the God of forgiveness. The God who's given his son, who bore the wrath of God for our sake. They will know me because I will forgive their sin. Is that your vision for forgiveness? Is this the God you know? Are you making up a God? You making up a God that's got his arms crossed and he's just looking at you. Yeah, okay, there you go. There you are. Gosh, you make me sick. Oh, I'm so tired. Sick of you. Is that the God you've made up? Not the God of the Bible. The God to be known is the God who forgives iniquity. It's wonderful when the four guys tear the roof off the house that Jesus is teaching. They can't get inside. People are stuffed like an like a overstuffed suitcase spilling out of the house. So all they can do on the flat roof is take the tiles away and drop him down in front of Jesus to be healed. But the first words, first words to the paralytic as he's being let down, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? Take heart. Take heart. That's the message God comes to you and me with. Take heart. All your sins, every last thing you've ever thought, said, and done, they're all forgiven. And to that Precious woman in Luke 7, the other text here, who's washing his feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair and anointing his feet with precious perfume. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. This woman racked by a lifetime of sin. Your sins are forgiven. And the proclamation, I just use one of the passages, but the proclamation of the apostles in Acts, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. His name representing all that he's done, all that he is. So you receive forgiveness through all that Christ has accomplished, all that he is as a savior. And so Paul can say in Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, tying it specifically to the shedding of blood, blood representing a life that was sacrificed, a life that was given, representing a death on our behalf. It recalls Passover when blood was put on the doorpost of the houses The blood represented for those houses, death has occurred. And so the death angel passes over. Death had to happen, but death had a, there was a substitute. 
A substitute. That's what Paul is saying here. There's a substitute for you. Bloodshed. One died horribly on your behalf so that now you have forgiveness. Colossians 2. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then John writing his precious words. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. So, brothers and sisters, are you living in the gratitude of being forgiven? That's hard to do. It is, it's a life's work. To so meditate, to so thank God regularly so that that gratitude begins to nourish your life. A gratitude that can't be taken away by any circumstance, even death itself. Gratitude of being forgiven, the relief, the amazement, the astonishment. All my sins are forgiven. I've been restored to God. This the source of all your change, all the transformation, which we'll talk about in the third point, is to rest in and believe that you're forgiven of sin. The, the, the root of all of your kindness to other people or the constant supply for a kindness that you've never been able to show to your husband or wife or children or friends, neighbors, is the wonder of being forgiven. And, and that's addressed in the uh, epistles Forgive as you're forgiven. Show kindness and patience as he has shown kindness and patience to you. This is the root of all relational richness. It's the root of all change that will occur in your life. This vision of being a forgiven person. And brothers and sisters, not to live in this forgiveness. I'm I'm not calling it apostasy because we all struggle with it and if we believe perfectly we'd be perfect people right and so the writer in hebrews talks about those who've abandoned christ and they've trampled underfoot the son of god but i would at least urge you that not to forgive in his forgiveness or not to rest in his forgiveness is at least to lift the foot up to trample on his death To say, this didn't do anything for me. He didn't accomplish anything for me. His death didn't get me forgiveness. His death didn't bring me into fellowship with God. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is your inheritance. This is the glory and richness that you can live out in your life of being a forgiven person. Think through... Maybe you have to trace through what are those things that plague you? What are those things that eat at you? What are those things that you think, gosh, if I could only go back and do this differently, if I could only go back and not have said that thing. Okay, okay. All of that, fine, yes. Do you know forgiveness for that thing? Do you know forgiveness The cross 
giving us a vision of forgiveness. What really tests that is the second point that gives you a vision for God's favor. I've said this before, but I've heard so many times people say, well, I know, I know God forgives me of my sin. And I know Jesus took my sin away. I know that. Well, do you believe God loves you? Well, you know, <laughs> do you believe that God has favor on you every day? Oh, that's where a breakdown occurs. But I, my point is, if you really believe in his forgiveness, then the next step is easy in a sense. Then I'm in his favor. There's no other option. If you're forgiven and and all guilt is taken away, all that's left is God's favor upon you. Constant favor, only favor, forever favor, intense favor, delight to do you good. As it says in part of the new covenant in Jeremiah, he will rejoice over you to do you good. He's zealous to do you good. That kind of favor. You see, here Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the substitute, the righteous one in the place of us who are unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And that means into fellowship with God, into the favor of God, into intimacy with God, into the very presence of God who smiles upon us now. We stand in his presence, even as sinners, received, embraced, accepted, beloved. And that's what he died for, you see? He suffered. Think of all of his terrible suffering on the cross. What was the end result? I want my people to be in the presence of my father and to know his favor. See, again, for us to reject or refuse and not move into and embrace and enjoy that favor is to turn our backs in ways upon the cross itself and what Christ suffered in order that we might have it. And so Romans, we quote this a lot, but this is Paul's logic. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's for us. There's nothing, no person, no event, no circumstance can ultimately be against us in God's purpose for us. And here's the logic. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with, also with him graciously give us all things? If he was going to hold something back, Look, I'll give you wealth, I'll give you long life, I'll give you children, I'll give you a good job, I'll give you lots of friends, but I'm not giving you my son. That could be, you know, the way God thought. I'll, I'll, I'll give you everything, I just can't. I'm giving you my son. And you look at that and say, wait a minute, you'll give me anything. You'll give me everything, won't you? There's nothing you would withhold from me, is there? Because you gave your son for me. That's the logic. And brothers and sisters, is that your expectancy in this life? 
We talk about life expectancy, you know, how many years. I want to talk about this kind of, do you have, what's your life expectancy? What is the expectancy of your life? What do you expect from God? What do you count on from God? I've fallen into the habit in recent years of saying to Lord, to, to God in prayer, I count on you. I count on you to do this. Count on you because you will not withhold anything good from me. Now, I can't always define the good, and I don't know what the good is going to be made up of. And for sure, sometimes it doesn't look good. It's a tragedy. It's devastating. It's so bad we feel like we've been torn away from the promises of God. We can't even find God. We can't find his goodness. But there's the cross. There's the cross that defines what God is to us, that defines his favor. And so many times the very hard things that we read as being God being against us are the very fulfillments of his promises to make us like Christ and to draw us ever more closely to himself. Just like you've heard me say before, the little four-year-old, I was standing next to the window. He's on the bed, sick little boy. This is way back in Louisiana. And his mother's on the other side of the bed and a nurse comes in. And she has a shot in her hand. And the child just starts screaming, don't let her give me a shot. Don't let her give me a shot. You know what the mother did? Held him down. Mean, evil woman. (laughs) Held him down so that he couldn't move so that that lady could stick him with the shot. Most wonderful, loving thing she could do, especially in the face of a crying, screaming child who thinks you're hating him. Maybe, maybe God is infinitely above us. Maybe he's always showing his favor. And even in the worst things, he who has not withheld his own son is freely giving us all good things graciously. A vision for the favor of God. And that's why I've come to believe that this passage you've heard me quote so much in 1 John 4 is such a measure of our believing that our sins are forgiven. You could say to someone, do you believe Jesus has forgiven you of your sin? Yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Have you come to know and believe the love that God has for you? Well, well that's harder, isn't it? But, but they're the same thing. <laughs> if you're forgiven of sin, it's because he loves you. And have you come to know and believe that love that God has for you in the forgiveness of sin. So a vision of forgiveness necessarily means a vision of favor. And that's why on the next page or the back of it, I go to 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul, in a very similar way, like Romans 8.32, you see, is saying, if he didn't spare his own son, he'll freely give us all things. Here's another way to put it. All 
of God's promises. And I'm, I'm using the New American Bible and then the NIV because they have the best translations. Notice, however many are the promises of God, their yes is in him. So the cross is the gateway into this whole landscape of the promises of God scattered throughout Scripture. Why are every one of them good? Why are every one of them guaranteed? And you can say yes to them because of Jesus. Same thing as Romans 8.32. If he didn't spare his own son, he'll freely give you all things. All these promises, how can you know they're sure? God gave his son for you. Every promise is good. And the NIV says it well as no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Are you living by promise? Are you looking to promise, expecting God to fulfill promise? As I was reading through uh, the Psalms, in, in Psalm 119, 10 times the word promise is there in the New American Standard. But when you look at the original Hebrew, it simply means word or speech. But it's rightly translated promise because when God says it, it's done. It's a promise. When he says, I will do it, that's a promise. You can guarantee it. That's what covenant is. He's a covenant God. He's a promise-keeping God. And it's interesting how many times... The words faithful and steadfast love are put together. Always associ- almost always associated with each other. So that God's faithfulness to promise means he will constantly show us steadfast love. That's what he's faithful to do. His promise is fundamentally that of steadfast love. And so Hebrews 6 says, you and I are heirs of promise. Galatians 3 says, we are children of promise. And here in 2 Peter, it says, he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's how you lay hold of God, is through promise. And I urge you, have a vision For God's favor through Christ, which opens up all the promises of God. That's by which we will live every day. By which we will pour ourselves out to others. Because we are sustained by God's favor and promise. And I'll just touch on the last thing. The cross gives us a vision of transformation. A vision for transformation. So there's forgiveness. There's the constant favor of God upon us. Working in all things to bring good into our lives. And then there's the specific vision the cross brings of transformation. Notice, and I've I've grouped them so that you can just build one upon another and see how consistently scripture speaks of this. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb. Okay. So he's ransomed you from the feudal way that you used to live. Notice how he puts in Galatians one, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Is there hope that you might change from your formerly feudal way of living? Yes, Christ has redeemed you. 
Yes, he gave himself for your sins to deliver you from the evil life that you lived. Revelation 1, he loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood. When Christ hung suffering on the cross, it was to bring about the liberty from sin to begin and then progressively to occur in our lives. There is always that magnificent hope that you have. No matter how long you've struggled in this or that sin, you pray to him, Lord, you died to deliver me from sin. That's your vision. Your vision for change, your vision for transformation based upon the cross, upon the work of Jesus that has been accomplished for you. And then Peter and Titus not only talks about redemption from the negative, but then to the positive. So he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or Titus 2, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Okay, anything you're struggling with would fall under that, right? All disobedience, all rebellion. And then he died to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I've prayed this over and over. Oh Lord, you died to make me desire to love others. To have a zeal for loving others. Oh, pray with that expectancy. Have that vision for change in your life that is undergirded by the cross itself. And as Ephesians 5 and Colossians 1 point out, it includes our final ultimate transformation and the transformation of the whole earth. (laughs) That's the vision that we have. The cross of Christ, our own transformation that will finally bring us into perfection and will redeem the whole world. How big is this cross? How glorious is the cross of Christ? And there it is. I mean, it's the focus of our building, right? The one thing I want you to always remember as well. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Crucifixion was the most horrific form of torture probably ever imagined by mankind. Men were made to die over hours and even days if they could help it. They put a little pedestal, a little seat on the cross many times so that they wouldn't fall down and suffocate too early. So that they would stay there. Bleed and die and have the agony of being pierced. And they pierced him in all kind of ways, impaling them in every kind of way upon the wood. That's why such a horrific, unimaginable death. You could have to turn your eyes away from it. It's so horrific. It's not to take away from this glorious window because, see, the window shows forth the glory the life, the light, the encouragement, the vision, if it were, of the cross. But it came through the suffering of our Lord. That's 
how much he desired you, how much he desired to redeem you, how much he desired to have you forever. This glorious Jesus, this glorious Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise your great name for taking upon yourself flesh, for becoming a servant even to the point of death, even death on the cross, as Paul said. Oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, mighty God, what you have done for your people. And you will bear the wounds forever. You'll bear the signs of your love forever. We will always look upon you. We'll always rejoice. You are the one who redeemed us. You are the one who rescued us through unimaginable suffering. Oh, Lord, fix our hearts upon you. Renew us. Give us a vision for forgiveness and favor and transformation from this glorious cross of Christ. Amen.